So, good evening to you all. You're all very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Being True to Yourself. And the subtitle is If You Are Not Being True to Yourself, Who or What Are You Being True To? We are far greater than we have ever dreamt of. Most of us do not discover how to live until it is time for us to die. We die to ourselves at a very early age and are only buried at the collapse of our body many decades later. And the big question for us is when we leave secondary school, not what am I going to do, but what sort of a man or woman am I going to be? Am I going to sell my soul for the material possessions of the world? Am I going to live in the opinion of others, effectively living as a people pleaser, and even that not too successfully? Or am I going to be true to myself, fulfilling my destiny, displaying my inner true self to the world, in all I feel, say, and do. We need to have a philosophy for our lives, not just a series of occupations to fill them. We must each define how we wish to live and how we wish our lives to unfold. Otherwise, life will be a series of random events and we will drift like a piece of flotsam on the ocean surface brought hither and thither by matters outside our control. And without taking such a philosophical stand, we will live as others wish us to live, like lemmings walking off the cliff to our living deaths and ultimately our deaths. We do not want to lie in our deathbeds wondering, what if my whole life was a lie? So what does my life stand for? What do I want written on my gravestone? Or what eulogy would satisfy me if I could hear it? Without a philosophy, without this decision, how are we able to make correct choices as to how to live? As Martin Luther King Jr. said, every one of us has the power for greatness, not for fame, but for greatness. Greatness is not for the few. There are no superfluous people on this planet. We are all duty-bound to have an impact. Now, what is life like when we are untrue to ourselves? Well, being untrue to ourselves detaches us from our real nature. And nothing will ever satisfy us other than to be ourselves fully and completely. Most of the time, we are inauthentic. We seldom express what we feel, what we think, or what our true intentions are. We tend to behave in ways that we think will be acceptable to others. Adjusting ourselves to work, social and personal demands becomes so naturalised that we lose touch with our true nature. 
We become identified with a particular self-image of ourselves that we believe would be more acceptable than our real selves. And then we deceive ourselves about who we are and what we really want. We allow all sorts of things to define us. Our job, where we live, etc., etc. But who are we really? And we believe that there are parts of us that are not safe to reveal to the world. We begin to believe that I am not acceptable as I am. So I need to be different than what I am. And all of this is taught to us by our parents and teachers. Things like that I ought to be quieter than I am. I need to be less energetic or more interested in this or that. And in the end, we are terrified that people might see us as we are. Not only do we not want others to see us as we are, we don't want to see ourselves as we really are. And we interpret the events of life so that these beliefs are reinforced. This false personality then gets more and more dominant. And in the end, we think, this is me. It's just the way I am. The personality being insubstantial and untrue, we don't want to examine it deeply. We just might discover that we're a sham. And every so often we act outside of our false selves and for a moment our real self is there. And we realize that deep down my true self is alive and well but simply covered over and inoperative. And our personality, instead of being a friend of ours to help us reveal ourselves to the world, largely becomes a collection of internal defences and reactions, deeply ingrained beliefs about myself and habits which only allow me to behave in a particular way. We are all suffering from a case of mistaken identity. Why do we often feel so empty, no matter how much money we have, or how successful we have become? Questions haunt us such as, are we in the right career, or is something else my life's work? And with this mistaken identity, we take ourselves and the events of our lives too seriously. However, no one takes us seriously when we take ourselves too seriously. And life is full of dreaded have-tos, doing many things, but we don't love to do them. We feel we have to do them. And burdened by the have-tos, we sometimes wonder if the life of the tramp is not more attractive. One major effect of being untrue to ourselves is that we live full of fear. We are so afraid to live our lives truly and fully. We have sold out for a false security. The security of that which is external to us. I.e. material possessions or how others see us. We become preoccupied with increasing our net worth of getting a newer or bigger car, but nothing of real significance. 
These ideas lead us by the nose and we are slaves to them. We so much fear. Fear of rejection, fear of loneliness, fear of failure, fear of success, fear of the unknown, fear of being different, fear of being laughed at, or fear of being ignored. We are dominated by fear. And the result of fear is that our lives are much smaller than they're meant to be. And we've been taught to be afraid of so much. And all fear is imagination. It has no basis in truth. In truth, we are indestructible and unaffected by all that happens. We cling to the familiar and fear change. We fear the unknown. And yet, when we were children, it was all unknown. And we didn't fear it. We were in awe of it, filled with wonder for it. So what has changed? All resistance to what is new is caused by this fear. We are frightened to leave the crowd. We want to fit in and not to stand out. So we think like everyone else. We behave like everyone else. We are afraid to listen to the call of our hearts and try new things. Death is only one of the ways to die. Ordinarily, we are amongst the living dead. Jesus said this. He said, let the dead bury the dead. He was talking about you and me. We are the dead burying the dead. The second aspect, when we are not being true to ourselves, is that we live our lives in pain. A deep subconscious pain. That it's so familiar that we don't even know it's there. It's a pain that arises from knowing that we are not being true to ourselves. And to forget this pain, we distract ourselves with activity. Or we're afraid to be alone. Because when we're alone or we're not active, we can feel the pain. We fill our lives to keep out the silence and stillness. Because in that silence and stillness, we know we are living untrue to ourselves. So we're always taking up new activities. And we add to our houses. We put on things like decking and hot tubs. Imagine if birds did that. Imagine if a bird just didn't build a nest. He said, okay, I think I'll go for the old hot tub to the side. And then decking and then maybe a, you know, an attic. And then maybe a room in the attic for the, for the little birds. Every year there's a new fad and we participate. We don't want to be left behind. We might just miss out. And we live out our past. All that we picked up in our childhood. All the patterns and ways of behaving. How much of our parents is in us? How much is really you? We focus on what is missing in our lives rather than what we are all blessed with. And we postpone living now. We say things like, I will spend more time with my family 
when I get the promotion. I will, I will, I will. But we never do because we have learned to postpone. And when the time comes, we just postpone again. We have so many plans for the future and we are so sure that we're going to get them. None of us plan to die unless it's inevitable. And it is. It is inevitable. Jesus, in the Gospel of St. Thomas, says, there was a rich man who had much money. He said, I will use my money and I may sow and reap and plant and fill my storehouses with fruit so that I lack nothing. This is what he taught in his heart and that night he died. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Would you like to hear them again? <laughs> Stark words, aren't they? Uh, just say this lady in the school died tragically in the sense that a bus ran over her a month ago. Lady in her 50s and she had attended the school on a particular night and finished her class and she was leaving the school building and she said to the last man who actually spoke to her, she said, next Friday I'm going to ABC. She didn't get home that night. All these plans are a complete waste of time. They're not in control. We are afraid of our light, of our brilliance. We are afraid that our gifts will mean that we will stand out. That greatness will come our way. Do you know why we're afraid of our greatness and why we avoid greatness? Because with greatness comes responsibility. I want the greatness, but not the responsibility. And again, I've told this story before, but when God was designing me, he left out a beautiful singing voice. He decided we won't give him that. And he said, we will design his singing voice on the style of a crow. And on that basis, being a man who would desire to be brilliant at absolutely everything, I have always seriously envied people with great singing voices. I just don't admire them. I sort of half hate them. The fact that they can do this and I can't. And I would sometimes imagine myself there standing on the stage singing some glorious aria from a, an opera and people looking up at me adoringly and saying, what a glorious voice he has. Anyway, so that has been that sort of idle dream in me for many a year. But about six or seven years ago, or maybe ten years ago, there was an article where somebody had interviewed Pavarotti. So I read this article and the lady said to Pavarotti, how much do you practice? You see? And he said, seven hours a day. Now, I just like the idea of singing. Right? <laughs> you know, I like the idea of audience worship. The idea of practicing now doesn't really appeal to me. So, the desire to be a great opera singer, you know, took a real nosedive at the thought of seven hours of practice every day. And she was obviously gobsmacked as well, and she said to him, and what do you practice? He said, well, for three hours every day, I go up and down the scales. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, that would be like watching cricket or something appalling, you know. I prefer just to buy the CD of Pavarotti at this stage, right? And she said to him, how do you do it? 
how do you do this? And he said, I consider my voice as a gift from God. And it is my responsibility to present it to the world in such excellent shape as brings delight to the maximum number of people. So I bought the CD. <laughs> I don't want to practice seven hours a day. I don't want the responsibility of keeping a great voice in great shape. I just, you know, would like the, uh, the adoration bit thrown in for free. Anyway, as a result of not wanting this responsibility and greatness doesn't come our way, we behave in mediocrity. We believe we are not meant for miracles, so we play small. We become average fathers and average husbands and average friends. We make so much of trivial things. We make the unimportant important and the important unimportant. And most of the time we are simply not where our bodies are. We are unavailable, caught up in our mental and emotional world. Life is calling us, but we are not there to pick up. In the end, the one person that we have lost contact with, the one person whom we have no relationship with, is ourselves. We don't know who we are and what we are meant to be doing with our lives. How we drive is how we live, i.e. mainly in a dream. It is like we are asleep at the wheel of life. We get to miss the whole journey. Life passes us by like buses when we are in a dream at the bus stop. Often we wake up when it's too late. The bus is disappearing down the road. Then we chase after life and are exhausted by it. We chase recognition and fortune. And whatever we achieve is not enough. Just not enough. And we end up losing what means most to us. We are like dead men walking. The spark has gone out of our lives. Compare our levels of enthusiasm for our lives with what they were when we were children. The simple proof of it is if you remember how you leapt out of bed in the morning when you were a child and how you get out of the bed <laughs> with utmost reluctance. Unless you're in Barbados for a fortnight. Our lives are full of unexamined assumptions passed on to us by our elders. That wealth is better than poverty. Even though there's absolutely no link between happiness and wealth. That birth is better than death. That youth is better than old age. Unexamined, we live out our lives and experience our lives according to these assumptions, most of which are false. Living according to these false assumptions, our lives, in turn, are false. We spend a lot of our time pretending, pretending to listen, pretending to be interested, pretending to agree, pretending to be patient and kind. We do things to fit in, and we think things to fit in, and we feel things to fit in. What we value most when we are young, we value least when we are old. And on our deathbed, we realize that all the values of our old age are in turn worthless. 
We leave this world knowing that we have wasted our lives. Leonardo da Vinci, which proved by many standards, would be said to have lived a great and glorious life. But he wept in the arms of the King of France, dying, realizing that he had wasted his life. When dying, it is not the size of our house or bank balance that would give us satisfaction, but whether we lived brave, authentic lives full of love. We doubt our lovability, so we crave to be loved by others. You know that no child doubts its own lovability. It pukes all over you, it wakes you up 15 times a night, but it always thinks, I am lovable. Anyway, we crave to be loved by others. But the more false we are to ourselves, the less we love ourselves. And the less we love ourselves, the more we crave to be loved by others. When you truly love yourself, you will have no need, no need to be loved by another. We do anything for attention. We'll even play victim, whatever, just to be noticed. When we play victim, everybody else is to blame for the state of our lives. You know, my mother, in the last years of our lives, played ill. Within 30 seconds of visiting my mother, you would be given a, a whole list of illnesses and what state they were in, and a sort of an immense satisfaction that they were incurable. You know, <laughs> that she had a particular form of arthritis which was nasty and incurable. She hadn't got your average old arthritis. This was a very special one. Very few people get this one. <laughs> and you could see that she preferred the arthritis than the cure. Then what would she talk about? I have no arthritis. <laughs> That's a very short conversation. Whereas... The, the old nasty one, you can talk about that for a long time. We buy the lies of the previous generation, even though we would not like to have their lives. None of us wants to live like our parents live. And yet we buy into the lies of the previous generation. Lies such as that money buys happiness, and that security lies in having wealth. We're told so many lies that we believe. Like not to expect to be perfectly happy. A dreadful thing to tell a child. Don't expect to be perfectly happy. You will be as miserable as me. <laughs> not to set your sights too high. Have you heard that? Dreadful. What a thing to say. Or that conformity would make you acceptable. Or not to always speak the truth. Because you can't afford to speak the truth always. Or not to love too much in case we are exploited. I remember my mother said to me when I was getting married before I got married, she said, now don't have children too quickly. They will take away your freedom. I said to her, was that your experience of having me? <laughs> Is that what I did to your life? What a dreadful thing to say. I think I visited her 25 years later. I was so hurt. Now, 
We believe in scarce resources. In fact, there are too many people on this planet. The result is that we hoard and grab. Fundamentally, if we're in the Western world, we far too much. We believe in bad luck. God, that was bad luck. I didn't deserve that at all. We believe in injustice. All these beliefs. We lose our self-respect and begin to withdraw within. We begin to lose energy. And so much irritates us. If only life could be the way I want it. And why can't the world conform to my wishes? Since this is everybody's wish, it never does. It cannot conform to your wishes. We have buried our dream, covered it with cares and fears and lies. And there is the public persona, the private persona, and the real person. We have allowed our personality to dominate us. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the great American, said, Man is thus metamorphosed into a thing, into many things. The planter, who is man sent out into the field to gather food, is seldom cheered by any idea of the true dignity of his ministry. He seeks his bushel and his cart and nothing more and sinks into the farmer instead of man on the farm. A farmer is a far less creature than man on the farm. Even less still is a solicitor. <laughs> That's about the lowest you can go, right? Imagine being born man. I mean, male, female. Imagine being born man and turning yourself into a solicitor. How could anybody be proud of you? The tradesman scarcely ever gives an ideal worth to his work, but is ridden by the routine of his craft and the soul is subject to dollars. The priest becomes a form the attorney, a statute book, the mechanic, a machine, the sailor, a rope of the ship. Now, that's all the good news. <laughs> no, we're just getting to the good news bit, right? Because we do have a choice. We can live in the opinions of others, or we can be true to ourselves. So how are we to become true to ourselves? And there's a series of practices here. There's many more, but I've just selected a number and the reality is any one of these would be sufficient to bring you back to your true self. But the first one is self-remembering, i.e. remembering the truth about yourself. And then the development of your talents. So self-remembering, and development of talents, this is what a real life is all about. Firstly, remembering who we are and why we came into this world. It's an outstanding question to ask. And if you don't have the answer, you should ask it all your life. Why did I come into this world? Until you find an answer that satisfies you, you keep asking. 
before there can be any change in our lives, we need awareness. Awareness makes choice possible, and with choice comes the possibility of change. Self-examination is required if we're going to drop the false and be true to ourselves. So ask yourself, what will you no longer tolerate in your behavior, thoughts and feelings? You know, like, up to what age are you going to overeat? You know it's painful. You know it only causes revulsion and nausea and discomfort. So what age are we going to wake up and just eat the appropriate amount of food at a meal? David Henry Thoreau said, I know of no more encouraging fact than the ability of a man to elevate his life by conscious endeavour. So whatever level our lives are now, we can elevate them by conscious endeavour. If we do not do this inner work, all our fears and limiting ideas will run our lives. It takes courage to explore oneself, but is also the greatest, most exciting and most rewarding endeavour we will ever undertake. In the School of Philosophy, after students attend for many years, there's a particular exercise called reflection, which I won't go into the details of, but it's reflection. And you practice this, and it is incredibly revealing. So it reveals the truth about yourself, and it also reveals what is not true about yourself. So, sometimes it's not the most pleasant thing to look at if you, you see things that you're not particularly proud of in your own heart and mind. Anyway, I was about maybe 40 at this stage, I was doing this practice of reflection one evening and and I can't remember what it was that we were reflecting on some great statement of truth but I was reflecting on this statement and suddenly my life passed in front of me and what I saw was not a lovable man but a man who wished to be loved and because of his wish to be loved he was nice he was nice to other people And it was much stronger when I was younger. So I would give people lifts if I hated them. Because I wanted them to like me. I was nicer to them. Or, you know, I went out of my way to help people. Because I wanted people to love me. And I got to think to find out at 40 that a lot of your behaviour is motivated not by love for other people, but by a desire to be loved by other people. That ultimately is incredibly selfish. So nowadays, I'm not really nice to anybody. I'm much more myself. (laughs) As Ralph Waldo Emerson says, If there is something great in you, it will not appear on your first call. It will not appear and come to you easily without any work and effort. The second thing, if you want to be true to yourselves, is to serve. John Donne said, No man is an island entire of himself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. So make a little time every day to be of greater service to others. Help people to fulfill their dreams. You've no idea how many people have actively helped you to fulfill your dreams. 
ask how we can serve others better today. We are here to enrich the world. We are here to serve the force that sent us into the world. When we serve others, the creation then takes care of us. There's a law about this, by the way. The less you take care of others, the more you have to take care of yourself. So if you find that you seem to have to do an awful lot of the things for yourself, you should take a look at that. When great men and women, say a Mother Teresa or a a Mandela, do you think if they called to a house they had to do part of the cooking? When a man or a woman serves many, then the universe serves them. So he wouldn't have had to darn his own socks or do his own cooking or any of these things. Because by his service to many, let's say Mandela, by his service to many, many people, many, many, many people wish to serve him. So if you'd like to be really taken care of, then serve everybody. The world will adore you and serve you. I've told my wife this on many occasions. (laughs) (laughs) So, when we serve others, the creation then takes care of us. Make other people's lives better. So, as you sow, so shall you reap. And as Jesus promised, you get rewarded tenfold. That's not bad now, tenfold. Thirdly, if you want to be true to yourself, embrace the unknown. The unknown is new and exciting. It's not to be feared. We are afraid to leave the familiar and meet the unknown. When we leave the known, then there is no structure. Now, not uncertainty, but freedom. Do you know when a child makes something, whatever it is, it uses plasticine or a jigsaw, What does it immediately do when it finishes it? Breaks it all up again. Because if you turn plasticine into a doll, you have now trapped it in the form of a doll. The child always sets it free on the instant. What we do is we want to keep it. We show everybody. We take videos of it, photographs, and then we put it on Facebook. We send it around the world. Look at what I made. We trap it. Don't seek structure. Seek freedom. Often we would prefer to be a prisoner rather than regain our freedom. And even if we taste freedom, we often return to prison. Many of us live the lives of institutionalized prisoners. Our greatest adversity is often our greatest opportunity. When life is good, we get comfortable. We do not think deeply about the real meaning of life think I'm all right. Adversity, however, can make us philosophical. When challenged by adversity, we are often compelled to ask ourselves the big questions of life. And again, I've told this story before, but there was a man who was doing some work in the school, a very, very, very nice man, and tragedy befell him as he was doing this work in the school. His daughter died. And he said to one of the students in the school, he says, my whole life has been shattered. It's all been turned upside down. All the things I thought were important 
in the light of my daughter's death are unimportant. And all the things I thought were unimportant have turned out to be important. That's the great value of adversity. It makes you look again. The real tragedy, and I don't know whether it happened to this man, is not the death of his daughter and the shaking up of his life, but that most likely, most, most, most likely, within a couple of years, he will have reassembled his old life again. What was that uh, film with Arnold Schwarzenegger and a Terminator man or some creature that you could he was made out of steel or something like that and you could blow him up but then he assembled himself again was it Terminator man or something like that yeah obviously a very profound film I can see by your faces <laughs> but anyway yeah but you know you could blow him up and then all that would happen is he'd reassemble but that's what happens to us Winston Churchill said that every so often man trips over the truth but then he dusts himself down and walks on as if nothing happened <laughs> well, we're a bit like that so adversity always presents you with the opportunity to reevaluate. When we are old, what fills us with regret are not the risks that we took, but the opportunities we did not seize, all the things we did not do. The failure to try is the greatest failure of them all. Remember that great scene, or two great scenes in the One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? You had McMurphy and you had the big Indian. And McMurphy, they're in this washroom and McMurphy makes an attempt to rip this cistern from the pipes and fling it through the window. And it's brilliant acting by Jack Nicholson. But he fails. But the Indian doesn't try. The Indian doesn't try at all. Even though he's a giant of a man. Halfway through the film, I think McMurphy asks him, how come you... Because he's not mad at all. And he's in this lunatic asylum. And McMurphy asked him, why are you in this uh, lunatic assignment, the big Indian, who's about seven foot tall now and about 20 stone? And he said, all my life I've been told I'm small. And he believed them. So this giant of a man believed he was small and lived a very small life in a lunatic assignment. But the happy ending to the story is at the very last scene, he goes into the place where the cistern is, he rips it out, flings it through the window and makes his break for freedom. Some of us are still in the lunatic asylum thinking we're very small. <laughs> Never fail to try. Sometimes in our lives we have to make a leap into the dark. All progress is made by the risk takers. T.S. Eliot said, only those who will risk going too far can possibly find out how far one can go. Always forgive yourself your mistakes so that you can move on. We need to learn from our mistakes. Face our fears because it is in the facing of them that we transcend them. As we've heard many times, fear is a one-sided wall. We just need to get to the other side. Also question everything. And set aside that which does not stand to reason. That which deadens you. That which makes your light go out. Fourthly, cultivate stillness. We see the world not as it is, but as we are. So be still and see things as they are. Once we begin to listen to life, then our lives will work better. And we need to be still to listen. We cannot discover our destiny 
by thinking about it, our destiny will discover us. Very importantly, destiny comes to you. And we will only recognize it when we are still. Let life lead us rather than us push it. We worry about our destiny and we search for it. Better to spend our time discovering who we are because without that we cannot fulfill our destiny. Our destiny is our outer work. It's the expression of our talents. The truth about ourselves is our inner work. It is the inner work that we first need to do. Rebuild your true relationship with yourself. Get to know the workings of your body, mind and heart. And find out what you really value. Khalil Gibran wrote, There is something greater and purer than what the mouth utters. Silence illumines our souls, whispers to our hearts and brings them together. Silence separates us from ourselves, i.e. false selves, makes us sail the firmament of spirit and brings us closer to heaven. The biggest mistake is not to listen to yourself. Only in stillness can we hear our true selves. Socrates had a voice which forbade him to do certain things and he listened to it. This is why his life was free from error. Do you know that voice that sometimes speaks to you? And afterwards you say, I knew, you know, I, sh- I knew I should have brought the umbrella. It can be something mundane. A little voice said to you. Fifthly, work with and not against. And again, I told this story before, but when I became the head of the school, I was asked to be the head of the school, and I became the head of the school, and a year later I thought that ending my life might be actually more pleasant than actually leading this school and I was in absolute agony so I was with Mr. McLaren who was the founder of the school worldwide and I poured out my tale of woe about all these dreadful students of philosophy in Ireland and how none of them would do what I wanted them to do and uh, all that and he listened very patiently as uh, as he did and he only said one thing to me. So I went on for about a half an hour spewing out this diatribe. And he said to me, always work with what you have. And that was the end of the meeting. Right? So, always work with what you have. Which transformed my life. If, you, and if you're a man and you marry a woman, don't try and change her. Don't wish she was somebody different. Don't wish that she would think like you which would be an appalling infliction on a woman. Work with her. She works with you, you work with her. Work with what you have. George Bernard Shaw said, the unreasonable man tries to adapt the world to himself. The wise man works with nature, his own and that of the universe. Universal laws govern the world. And the need is to discover them and then to align them to how we live. Then our lives work naturally and automatically. Everything flows. And then everything happens like magic. Our lives become magical. 
It is like we are being guided by an invisible hand. The universe supports us and showers us with its blessings. The more we stop trying to force things to happen, the more magic will return to our lives. We cannot force the good to happen. We can only allow it. And let go our own rushed pace. Discover nature's timing. You know when you, you have to glue two things together and you read the instructions and it says, no, put one drop on one surface only. I think, I think I'll just put two. This first thing, I'm going to put two. And maybe if I put two on both sides, that would actually make it really strong. And it says, now wait three hours. And you know the way after two hours you're looking, it looks dry to me. And you have a go. Oh, rats. Back to the beginning. <laughs> you know that? Where you, you think that you know more than the people who invented the glue. Isn't it insane? So, let go your own rushed pace. Discover nature's timing. It's not going to unfold as we wish, but as nature allows. Let go all our plans, desires, fears, control, and join the game. Then we can relax and enjoy the great adventure that it is. Trust in nature and not our own ego. By holding on to our plans, we often miss what is truly best for us and what is presented to us. We think we are more intelligent than the universe. Surrender to the will of the Absolute. Saying yes makes life simple. Yes to opportunities. Yes to all we are asked to do. Stop resisting. A fear resulting in the desire to control is one of the most influential factors in causing our lives to be untrue to ourselves. So release control over your life. What is the basic idea behind our need to control it? Why do we need to know how our lives will turn out? What's the advantage? Do you ever enjoy a film the second time when you know how it turns out? Imagine how boring your life would be. You know how it turns out. Or frightening or whatever. The sixth thing is simplicity. And we should get excited again about the simple pleasures of life. And we should make our lives simple. It's one of the great principles of feng shui or feng shui, you know. You need to clean out your house. And we did this over Christmas. We started, I, Adolf here, did it. Right? He insisted that it was happening. And I could live till about I'm 160 and still not wear out the pullovers that I have. And my wife has a leather jacket from when she was 24. I remember her in it. She was outstanding in that leather jacket, a little bomber leather jacket. She is never, ever, ever fitting into that leather jacket again, right? <laughs> never. It's not elastic. It's not going to expand to take her frame, right? Do you think we could get it into the bin? Not a chance, right? Well, we should enjoy the simple pressures, the ones we cherished when we were children. Throwing stones so they skip across the water. You know? Or a walk on the beach, or turning off the telly and playing cards with the family. The seventh practice to being true to yourself is to answer your calling. This is so important. Every one of us has a calling. We talk, we refer to certain careers, you know, as vocations or callings. Like, 
say the priesthood or maybe teacher or something like that. But every one of us has a calling. And it's calling us. We're just not answering. We all came into this world for a particular reason and we are fully equipped to fulfill it. Our talents naturally will fulfill our purpose. This is the easy way to live. Every person's life is special and is important. So let go our limitations. Our lives are wasted by the love we have not given, the talents and powers we have not used, and the risks we have not taken. Every one of us has something to contribute. We have the responsibility to discover it and live it, and it is this that enriches our lives and the lives of others. So discover your larger purpose. As said, all have a calling, and discovering it is what makes our life exciting. Then we will leap out of bed in the morning to fulfill it. Do everything excellently, particularly the small things. And with this we gain self-respect. And everything then satisfies. Life is not designed such that only the big things satisfy you. It doesn't have to be a fortnight in Barbados for it to satisfy you. It can be a walk on the local beach. Satisfaction is not in what we do, but how we do it. And when you're satisfied, you feel good about yourself. The eighth point is idealism. In truth, man is perfect. He is ideal. It's not the, the best thing to say on the first date. I'm ideal, by the way. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but, but philosophically, you are ideal. You are perfect. In serving idealism, man is serving the truth in himself. He's being true to himself. If we serve idealism, dormant forces and faculties and talents come alive. We discover that we are far greater than we ever thought we were. And limiting thoughts are broken forever. Idealism fills our hearts and it engages our hearts. Think of how much in our lives our heart does not fully support. When you do what is in your heart, you would never subcontract it out. You would never invent a machine to do it for you. Once there is an emotional engagement around an activity, then the passion in our lives returns and energy overflows. We each should have a compelling cause to live. And how you know whether you have a compelling cause to live is, what are you willing to die for? The mind with its limiting ideas keeps us small and untrue to ourselves. The heart, on discovering meaning or purpose, liberates us. Have you ever read Viktor Frankl's book, A Man's Search for Meaning? So Viktor Frankl, a Jew, ultimately a psychoanalyst, incarcerated in one of the dreadful concentration camps with his wife. And he discovered his particular form of psychotherapy effectively while in the camp. And what he discovered was this that 
men who had no meaning or who could find no meaning to their existence died and those who did have meaning lived and he said it was independent of their physical state so some people were old and very unhealthy and they survived and there were others who were young and very healthy and they died he also said a very interesting thing he said you could tell a man who was going to die you could see a look come over his face a look of hopelessness and albeit in excellent physical health he'd be dead three days later so you have to find meaning or purpose to your life so seek significance in our lives and not success so called Pandit Nehru, the first president of India, after it's gained its independence, said, We were not great men, but we aspired to great ideals, and this made us into great men. As was said earlier, man was made for great things, and he can only express his greatness if he has great ideas, powered by love and understanding nobody with small ideas has ever attained greatness when men and women have served great and universal ideas they've become immortalized in the memories of mankind and they have inspired and uplifted generations Mandela with his idealism of forgiveness Gandhi with his idealism of non-violence successfully achieved their aims by not abandoning true idealism and it is for this that they will be remembered for centuries to come so become a servant leader and a servant leader is one who serves a cause greater than himself the question that now arises for us is what is our universal idealism the more universal it is the more powerful it will be and the more successful it will be Forgiveness is universal. There's no such thing as personal forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't belong to you. You may participate in it, but it doesn't belong to you. Forgiveness is universal. Peace is universal. Goodwill to all mankind is universal. Freedom is universal. Idealism limited in its universality does not succeed. If it is the universals that are served, then the particulars are taken care of and fulfilled. If only the particulars are served and universal idealism is abandoned for either pragmatism or expediency, then the particular fails to be achieved, or at best, there's only temporary success. On any great journey, there are many obstacles, for otherwise it wouldn't be a great journey. At times it appears that one is not on the true road, but has somehow ventured into a cul-de-sac and has to turn back. It may often appear that we are going nowhere, or worse still, that we are on the completely wrong road. The strong temptation is then to abandon universal idealism. However, great men and women, men and women of universal idealism, do not abandon their idealism ever. Instead, they entertain no doubts, harbour no fears, engage in no distractions, but resolutely proceed ahead knowing that a successful outcome is the only option. Force does not guarantee success, but there is that which does guarantee success, and it is that which is the true strength of any cause. 
If one has virtue on one's side, then one cannot but succeed. All good deeds succeed. And the reason why is because in virtue there is limitless strength. To act virtuously requires strength. To open a door for another requires a bit of strength. Vice only requires weakness. It's not your strength you're using when you're overeating. It's your weakness. Only the strong will be virtuous and thus victory only goes to the virtuous. To be victorious, the so-called enemy must be eliminated. And to eliminate the enemy, he must first be disarmed. And how do you disarm an enemy? And the answer is by surprise alone. He thinks he knows us, our strength, our weaknesses, our limits, how far we will go and how much we will give. So surprise him, disarm him. Try giving him more. If he wins our coat in law, offer him our cloak also. Be more generous than he ever imagines we could be. Only the great ones can act first. The mediocre at best can follow their lead. So be true leaders. Be the first to smile. The first to offer our hand. The first to forgive. The first to say sorry. Without those willing to be first, the world is full of division and unresolved issues. And irrespective of the initial responses from the other side, never, ever, ever abandon universal idealism. And this is done by making peace and freedom and love absolute for us. Having surprised them with our steadfast love, peace, generosity, magnanimity and forgiveness, all of which will be inspired and made possible by our undaunting courage, the heart of the enemy melts, as it must inevitably do. And now we have eliminated our enemy by making him our friend. The great lesson of the First World War was the Treaty of Versailles did not make Germany a friend of the Allies. So the war was won, but the enemy remained. If, if you take a more benign look on the Second World War, the enemy was eliminated because the enemy was converted into a friend. That's how to eliminate enemies. You don't actually eliminate them. You turn them into friends. Then you will have an ally to your cause. And the result of this is unity between men and nothing is stronger, and nothing is more conducive to peace and harmony. And when we think we have given all, then give more. And when we think that what we have given is not appreciated, then give more. When doubt closes our heart to further generosity of spirit, then be generous and give more. Everybody wants peace and freedom and happiness and love. Deny these things to people and they will curse us, isolate us, and also forget us quickly. Help bring these things to all people and we will win their love and their admiration, and they will immortalize us in their memories. The Shankaracharya said with regard to men and women of idealism, there are two ways in which this spiritual knowledge is made available. Some act with responsibility, 
while others engage in this field without any responsibility. Men with responsibility have some idealism and they use this knowledge to uplift the community and nation to progress and prosperity. Their spiritual knowledge and understanding provides them with simplicity, precision and speed in all their activities. Whatever is their volition or vocation, the simplicity of their approach to any problem, the precision and resolution of their work and speed with which they accomplish and complete the work in hand brings about success. They are responsible men and my blessing is for them. They have enough knowledge of the spiritual world and with that knowledge and fresh fine energy from meditation they should shine and present an example of goodness and efficiency. A man of spiritual knowledge devoid of its practical use is of no consequence nor is a practical and efficient man without spiritual knowledge. My good wishes are for those who have both idealism of spirit and action. And just to say something that may have arisen in your mind, if you look at India, India has produced great sage after great sage after great sage. Century after century, they produce them manyfold. But they have a society which is chaotic. And sometimes people in the West will ask, how can you have so much wisdom and so much ignorance in the one place? And the Shankaracharya answered this. He said, the trouble is that in India there is a great tradition of the wise withdrawing from society. So the very best withdraw from society. This weakens society so that it's chaotic. So his great encouragement to people in the school was not to become a recluse or withdraw to a monastery or anything like that, but to stay in society and use the spiritual knowledge and your vitality to create strong society. So, we are left with, are we strong enough to be compassionate? Are you strong enough to be compassionate? Are you brave enough to be generous? Are you big enough to be forgiving? Do you have enough understanding to know that virtue will guarantee you victory in whatever you undertake? Are you inspired enough and willing enough to walk the road to greatness? Is your idealism universal enough to disarm your enemies? Is your love great enough to melt his heart and make him your friend? As said before, in any great journey lies ahead many challenges, temporary setbacks and ultimate success. All will come to pass, for unto everything there is a time. Be patient. Mandela was patient, Gandhi was patient. Their patience, their universal idealism, their virtue were the bedrock of their fulfilling their potential. And it can be the same for us. So to conclude, when we look within we find our true self and finding our true self we find peace and love and freedom and understanding and finding these we can now be true to ourselves. Peace, love, freedom, understanding all express themselves through our body, mind and heart. We are each a special flower that adds to the beauty 
of the whole garden. Being true to ourselves, we live well and living well, we will die well. Would you like to die well? Well, you cannot die well unless you live well. It's too late to start practicing on your deathbed. Satisfied in life, we will be satisfied to leave it when the end comes. You know when you eat an excellent meal, are you satisfied to leave the table? Well, you should never be asked for more time in this life. You should have lived it so well that you'd be satisfied to leave it now. You happy to leave now? We could organise it. <laughs> we should always be happy to leave now. Doctor tells you you've got three minutes, three years, thirty years. You say, I'm happy to go. Because you're going in satisfaction. Satisfaction won't be at the end of the journey. You will live in satisfaction. Frederick Ghost said that there is a giant asleep within everyone. And when that giant awakens, miracles happen. When's the last time a miracle happened in your life? The truth about yourself is that giant within you. To love yourself is to live an excellent life. So love yourself. James Allen said in As a Man Thinketh, Cherish your visions. Cherish your ideals. Cherish the music that stirs in your heart the beauty that forms in your mind, the loveliness that drapes your finest thoughts. For out of them will grow all delightful conditions, all heavenly environment. Of these, if you remain true to them, your world will at last be built. Do your best and let life do the rest. Being yourself is a journey home. It is a return to our original nature in truth, we already are whatever we have dreamed of becoming. It is just that we have forgotten it. Ultimately, the concept of self-improvement is invalid. It is a more a growth of self-remembering or a self-unfoldment self-improvement. Each one of us has a song to sing and the world should hear it. In the end, we are only answerable to ourselves. So how will we answer on our deathbed? Have I lived well? Was I the same on the outside as I was on the inside? Did it matter to me what others thought of me? Was it the real me that I presented to the world? To be successful is to live life in your own way as an authentic person. And it is not about making one big change or doing nothing until the one big change presents itself. It is about uplifting our lives every day in every small way we can. Mother Teresa said, there are no great acts, only small acts done with great love. She also said, if I did not pick up that first person in Calcutta, I would not have picked up the 42,000. So start now by picking up your life and being true to yourself. That's the end of the talk. So thank you.
Yes, what would you like to ask? You spoke about children and youth, and we bound out of bed as children. And as we get older, of course, we crawl and we, we hit the snooze button several times. It struck me that I was watching a wildlife program last week, and they were talking about, I think it was polar bears. The guy was commenting, look, you can see that this is a young polar bear because he's playful and bounding around at the back of the group, you know. Is it not a little bit of human nature that as we're young, we have more energy, we are energetic? Polar bears don't have consciousness. So it's not about ego or the world getting them down, you know. The lower creatures, and if I can call a polar bear a lower creature than a human being, the lower creatures are bound by nature. So they are bound to get old. Man is not. Man can transcend the limitations of his own nature. He can transcend the limitations of his body. So it is possible to have a very old body and have a very young mind and heart. It's also possible to have a very young body and have a very old mind and heart. The way it is often put is that a man becomes old when his ideas become fixed. Some people are very old at about 16. (laughs) It's not obligatory for man. It's not obligatory. The polar bear can only live as a polar bear. He never lives as anything less than a polar bear and he never lives as anything greater than a polar bear. Man has the ability to become inhuman and he also has the ability to become divine and he can also live as a human. So he can live at any level. That's his choice. And by conscious endeavour he raises himself up. And we have stories, whether you accept or not, but we have stories like Saul becoming St. Paul and St. Francis of Assisi, who, who was a bit of a rogue, then becoming a man who completely uplifted the Catholic Church. One man. And we all know people who've led appalling lives and then for some reason something happens and they turn and they turn to some greatness or reveal some greatness. So man can do that. It's a pity for the polar bears and it's a tragedy for us. (laughs) You have the capability of greatness and you do that by reaching to the higher levels and that is, let's say, in philosophical terms that would be to the divine in you. That which is good, true, loving, peaceful, free, wise, all of these sorts of things. I mean, it's very interesting when we see a human being acting less than at the level of a human being, we refer to them as an animal. So he eats like a pig. Because a human being shouldn't eat like a pig. It's absolutely acceptable for the pig to eat like a pig. And if you try to train the pig to eat like a human being, you only make an idiot of the pig. You know, sometimes people dress dogs up, you know, they have a little tartan outfit or something like this. And you think, that's pathetic. So leave the dog alone. The physical aspect of your existence has importance, but it should never be master. Nothing should be master of you. So when somebody breaks a queue, their desire to get into the cinema masters them, and they behave less than a human being should behave. So body, mind and heart, you should be master of. And then they become your servants, and then they serve you to live a great and glorious life. And then you'll care for polar bears. You talked about fear earlier. Doesn't fear drive us to survive? I'd say it very harshly. It drives the ignorant man to survive. 
but there are other things that can drive you. So it would be much better to be driven by love. That's the greatest driver of them all. Much, much greater. But if you don't have love in your heart, then you may need fear. Just the same way that if a man or woman doesn't have love in their heart, desires make them active. Without any desires, they would be plainly lazy. So people often put that question, do you not need ambition? Do you not need a des- desires in order to succeed in life? Yes, you do, if you don't have love in your heart. But if you've love in your heart, love will outperform any desire. The care of a mother for a child is the perfect example of it. You can pay people, you know, lots of money, but they won't get out of bed ten times in the night to care for a sick child. They'll say screaming is good for it. But a mother will. A mother will. Because love will overcome her tiredness, her own desires for sleep, all of this, to care for the child. So if you find that, that you can have your heart filled with love, you'll achieve anything. Much better to live life because you love life than because you're afraid of death. Because you love it. Again, this is a different thing, but it gives you a sense of it. Leon McLaren, the man who founded the School of Philosophy, he would always make these sort of one-line statements and you'd be left for the next 20 years considering the fullness of it. But he said, I remember at one meeting I was with him, with a crowd of people, and he said, never be a hater of injustice, but always be a lover of justice. What haters of injustice do is they agitate They are agitated themselves and they agitate everybody around them. And they're haters and because they hate, they divide. So it's like the the animals rights people and they hate then, say, the scientists. But a lover of justice always unites because love does unite. So don't be afraid uh, or out of fear, live, but love life and then you will live. You reminded me of a quote there from Mother Teresa that said she was asked if she wanted to march against the war in Vietnam and she answered no. And she says, but you give me something to march for. Very good. And I'll be there. So I just thought it back yeah, up what you just said. Excellent. Excellent. There's so much against this and that. And, and as I said, you'll find that wherever there is this against this or that, it's very aggressive. It's like anti-war people rioting. You know, like it doesn't make any sense. You can actually find anti-war people are quite violent. They're particularly violent in their viewpoint. So always be for. In another way of looking at it is this, that say you were blessed with a bad temper. All right? <laughs> well, the Shankaracharya always refers to it that. Let's say you are blessed. And it's a very, it's a very nice way of thinking. Let's say you were blessed with a bad temper. Uh, he didn't say this, but other sages have said this. Never work on your vices. Because then you're working on that which is disgusting and nasty and mean and selfish and depressing and all of that. Always work on your virtues. So don't work on anger. Work on equanimity. Have greater equanimity. Then you will have less anger. Don't work on irritability. Work on patience. It's nice to work on patience. It's depressing to work on irritability. Only makes you more irritable. So always look to the good I once asked a great Indian educationist I said what happens if a boy or or girl has a defect in their character how would you 
rid them or help them to be rid of that defect. Let's say like anger or selfishness or jealousy or these sort of things. And he laughed at me. He laughed at the question. I thought it was a pretty good question, you know, but anyway. He laughed at the question, nicely, but he laughed. And he said, you never have to worry about a human being's weaknesses. All you have to do is to find out for what reason that child came into this world and help them discover it. For that they would give up all their weaknesses. And he gave the example of Gandhi. He said Gandhi had quite serious defects in, in his character. But when he discovered the purpose of his life, he gave them all up to fulfill that purpose. We often look at children and we see their defects and we try to work on the defects and we just keep on reminding the child of their defects. The real thing to do is to help the child discover what greatness they came into this world for. If the child finds that, he will give everything up. And you often find this in the world. You'll find, and I make it a sportsman, you'll find a sportsman and in every aspect of his life he's completely ill-disciplined except the particular sport. So I make it like a footballer or something like that and he's a bit of a rogue or really not a particularly nice man, ill-disciplined, all that, drinks too much and all that. But every day he trains. Trains for hours and hours. So for the one thing he shows his brilliance or excellence. That's what you always do. Always work on the best. And interestingly enough, you take somebody like Mandela, and I don't know in lots of areas what Mandela was like, but I know that in forgiveness he was world class. And for that I adore him. And I, I will forgive him everything else because of his capacity for forgiveness. You don't have to develop 40 virtues to be a world class human being. You only have to develop one virtue to a world class level and the world will think you are outstanding. Isn't that amazing? That's not too difficult. I mean, if, if you really worked out, say, patience, how long do you think, if you really concentrate, I am going to be a supremely patient human being. I mean, a year should do it. You know, of real endeavour. But shouldn't it? I mean, people give up addictions within a year, so why couldn't we give up, you know, whatever? Or maybe pick a quality that you really love in another. Sometimes I wonder, well, you know, if people look at me or they listen to me, what do they actually say? And I know there are certain adjectives they never use. So things like serene. <laughs> they might use enthusiastic. But they, they, and I sort of love serene. I'd love if somebody said, by the way, you're very serene. <laughs> Just pick a quality that you love that you yourself love and develop it to an outstanding level and the world will remember you for that quality. Think of the people that you remember from way, way back. It will be one quality. If I have to remember my father, I remember him. I have one word for my father and that's lion. He was a lion. When he roared, the jungle trembled. The leaves would fall off the trees in respect for his roaring. And his name was Rory as well. Very significant. <laughs> but, anyway, they, uh, but he was a brave man. And that's what I remember. And everything else, if, whatever other limitations there may have been in his being, I forgive them all for that. Because he taught me what a brave man is. So you only have to have one quality. And it shouldn't be beyond any of us to, to develop one quality. And then we will be outstanding.
an outstanding human being influencing everybody who meets us. Imagine that, that even the shopkeeper is uplifted by you buying a newspaper in their shop. And again, I'll just say this, uh, two things. In the School of Philosophy, many years back, we used to do calligraphy. So everybody effectively did calligraphy. And it was a great way of bringing stillness to the mind, because you can't do calligraphy with your mind all over the place. And also, you produce something beautiful. I loved the calligraphy. It was sort of my antidote to rugby. (laughs) I became still, precise, all these wonderful things. Anyway, I loved it so much that I disciplined myself to do my writing, all my writing, not just in the calligraphy class, in, in calligraphy. So I used to write my checks. In so I, whoever the payee was, you know, even I wrote a collector general beautifully, right? <laughs> collector general, whatever sum of money, and then signed Shane Mahal, you know, absolutely exquisitely. Anyway, I did this for about, well, I did it for a long time, but anyway, about three years after I started it, I went into my bank once. And uh, it was a cheque for cash. So I was just drawing out some money. And those days you could do a cheque for cash. So I wrote cash. And then, you know, whatever it was, a thousand punts and all that, and everything like that. And I handed it into the teller. And she turned around, she shouted at everybody, this is the guy. This is the guy. <laughs> and she was waving the cheque at them. Right? So, so they all came over to have a look at me. Right? <laughs> Right? Now, but just by signing my name beautifully and by writing a very small number of words beautifully, everybody had noticed. And you can do that. If you take something like as simple as handwriting, why not have beautiful handwriting? Why not, you know, somebody picks up and says, God, that's beautiful handwriting. That's a very simple way to uplift people's lives. Or the way you walk or the way you talk. You know, sit in a, in a way people say, God, you know, she sits beautifully or she walks beautifully. So we can all do it. Anyway. All right. Anybody else? Well, there's a, a lady back here. I have the oh, sorry, there's a gentleman here. Good afternoon. <laughs> yeah. There's a very aggressive gentleman up here who wants to say something. You probably have answered it in your last pronouncement there. But we're all beginning to on the road to finding out who we truly are. So what would be the one most important aspect of that that you would suggest that we adopt? Well, I think, well, I'm going to give you, um, unfortunately I'm Irish so I can't confine it to one, so I'm going to give you two. Right? <laughs> the first thing is that you make a decision that you're going home, that you're going to return to your true self. And you stay faithful to that decision. So that it's not that you're inspired on a particular night of philosophy and then it all fades away like a suntan four weeks later. You make a decision. So again, and I've told the story many times, but when I came to the School of Philosophy, I came as a typical 24-year-old. I was a qualified accountant, overpowered by lust for money and ambition and to appear oppressive to the world and all of that. And a very active mind. Very active mind. So... I came into part one philosophy and they had this stupid practice of sitting still, you know, where you had to do the exercise and you had to sort of put your hands on your legs and you had to be still. And I thought this was a waste of time. We could use those two minutes to ask real questions and all that sort of stuff. 
And after the first week's class, I bought about 25 books, you know, and I was home eating books on knowledge. And we were asked to practice the exercise, and there was no way I was going to waste any time practicing the exercise. So, after about six weeks, and I can't remember why it was six weeks, but after about six weeks, the tutor said, now we're going to practice it in the class. And I thought, oh, for God's sake. But everybody was going to do it, so I couldn't be the one idiot not doing it. But okay, so I said, all right, right, right. So I sat balanced and upright, and then he said, now allow the you know, tensions to go. Anyway, this incredible piece was over my head. It descended on my head. As far as I know, my hair stood up absolutely straight. I, I mean, I didn't open my eyes to. I came down. It literally covered me inwardly and outwardly. This a bit like as Jesus said, this peace that passeth all understanding. Right? So my whole being was enveloped in this peace. Right? And this lasted, say, whatever it was, two minutes for the exercise. And the tutor said, would anybody like to say what happened to that practice? And I, now, I heard myself say the following words. Right? I said, I have wandered for a million years and I'm going home. Now, I had heard nothing about reincarnation or anything like that at that stage. But I knew, I knew from the bottom of my soul that I had wandered this entire creation for millions of years and I had finally turned around and was going home. Right? So I made a decision there and then I would never abandon this. That I don't care if it took another million years to get home, I am going home. Now, that's rather dramatic, you might say. But your first thing you need to do is to make a decision. Because if you don't make that decision, you won't be able to face the doubts, the adversity, the challenges that arise. People often say, there's no difference between living with somebody and marrying. But there is a difference. The difference is you give your word. It's that word you need if you are to have any chance to face the challenging times. To commit the being verbally. So that's the first thing. You have to make a decision. If you don't, you'll drop it once difficulties come your way. And then, so let's say you've made the decision to how to make the journey. But if you've only got, a bit like you go to the desert island, you only bring one thing with you. Then you bring meditation. You bring meditation. First of all, it's universal. So it doesn't make any difference whether it's you or you or you or you. Meditation is for mankind. It's not for a particular type of men and women. It's for mankind. And secondly... It is the most powerful technique. Most, most powerful. And thirdly, in today's times, where people are very committed to jobs, family and all of that, it is the culmination of all simplicity and only takes a very limited amount of time, i.e. 30 minutes twice a day. So it's incredibly practical for people who wish to live in the world, participate fully, you know, have Sky Sports, one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven, a family and a career, and yet go home spiritually. Make the decision and always meditate. And say what the Shankaracharya guarantees, then you will go home. He guarantees it. It's not lucky that a man finds his way back to his true self. It's guaranteed. It's like, you know, a great swimming instructor says, if you do the following, you won't drown. He can guarantee it because he knows the laws of swimming, that's it. Well, the Shankaracharya knows the laws of spiritual development or of finding your way home. And how does he know? Because he went home. 
That's why he got home himself, so he knows. He's telling you from home. Is that okay? Great, thanks. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you mentioned earlier in your speech in relation to I as an individual will be more caring, more helpful towards other people, do the best I can, that uh, the universe would treat me the same way. So could you clarify that? Does that mean as I'm older or does it mean as an everyday life with family or that? Oh yeah, it means in everyday life. You'll find this. If you're nicer to people, they're nicer to you. If you shout at people, they shout back. All feelings are mutual. This is why you have to be very careful about what you think about others. Because they're going to think exactly the same about you. <laughs> you might apply more to a man than a woman, but I don't know whether you've ever, as a young man, been walking down the street and thinking, you, you see some guy coming up the same road as you, and maybe his hair is longer than yours, and you know, whatever it is, uh, and he's got 18 tattoos down the side of his neck or something like that. And you think, he looks like a toy. <coughs> And he gives a, you a wallop as he went by. <laughs> Never think a man is a thug. Because if you think a man is a thug, you'll draw out the thug in him. And again, I've told this story many times, but the head of the School of Philosophy in New York was a lady called Joy Dillingham. And Joy, under five foot and I'd say under seven stone, so a very slightly built, physically human being. And she was coming out of the School of Philosophy building late one night, the last person out, so there was nobody around, walking towards our car, and a gang of young Puerto Ricans gathered around her, grabbed her, dragged her into an alleyway, and rammed her up against the wall. So you can imagine that scene, right? And she looked at these young men and she said, Gentlemen, what do you want with me? So what did they do? What they did was, for a number of years, they came to the School of Philosophy building every night. They waited until she came out and they escorted her to her car so that nobody would ever harm her. Isn't that outstanding? Because she saw the gentleman in them. When you see a thug, you don't see everybody. You don't see the whole person. There may be a thug there, but there's also a gentleman. So you might as well call out the gentleman. There are times, say in the School of Philosophy, not everybody, as you might imagine, who comes to the School of Philosophy is a living saint, adorable, gorgeous, <laughs> and you would adore their company. So some people, in, in relation to my own nature, are challenging. At times, I sometimes have to wait until it's very painful, but at times when they're really getting to me, I remind myself that their children love them that their wife loves them, and that they see something that I don't connect with. And I say, what I need to do is I need to look at this person again and see what the child sees and what the wife sees and see what mother sees and brothers see. Because I'm obviously not seeing what they're seeing. One should always be very humble about opinions we hold of others. We don't really know people and again, I've told this before, I have to be married, my wife's name is Anne. And I'll just give the very shortened version of the story. But I've, I've watched people looking at Anne, not jealously or anything like that, but beautiful as she is, I've watched people looking at her. And I've watched when her father was alive, when her father looked at her, he saw a daughter. And when our children look at her, they see mother. 
And when her sisters look at her, they see sister. And when friends look at her, they see friend. And I don't know Anne mother, or Anne sister, or Anne daughter, or Anne... I actually know Anne wife. I know very well Anne wife. But I don't know the others, the other aspects. So to say that I know Anne is arrogant. There's much more to her. There are so many aspects to her being that I've never experienced. I've only experienced them in the relationship of husband and wife. But it's so important. Sometimes a person, and this doesn't apply to my wife now, sometimes somebody may not be an outstanding wife, but they can be an outstanding mother, and an outstanding daughter, an outstanding friend. So don't judge them by how they fulfill one role. I mean, don't judge me by my cooking, please, or by how I sing, right? (laughs) But there are other aspects where a contribution can be made. Does that help at all? It does answer the question, but sort of half answers it. All right, we'll ask it again and see if the other half will be drawn out of me. (laughs) No, No, but do, do. No, maybe sometimes, no, I'm sure someone else here could agree with me that you're doing things, you feel as if you're doing everything, basically with families and that. So, therefore, what I'm trying to ask you is, is there a way of doing it that people will think, you know, that you'll get good back? You never do it in order to get good back. Mm-hmm. That's a byproduct, mm-hmm. right? Like an artist should never paint for money. He should paint for the love of painting. Mm-hmm. Then if money comes, excellent. And if he loves painting, then the money will come. But he should never do it for the money. Let's say if a person was married, they should never, and let's say it was a wife, and let's say it's a wife at home, they should never cook the food in order to be loved by the husband. Mm-hmm. He would prefer to eat out. cook food out of love for the husband but not to be loved by the husband because that food then is coming with a price a demand it's like somebody hovering over you after they've cooked something and they're hovering over you and they're waiting and you think yeah I'm supposed to do something here right I've been eating oh yes it's lovely it's lovely I think it's fantastic but no matter how what you say, it never satisfies. So that's very, very important. Now, the problem is that we, we give up. We go so far, we think that's as far as I'm going to go. But what happens is some sort of false self-pride. Where you say, I'm just making a slave of myself here, and I'm making an idiot of myself, and I'm not going any further. But what we need to do is have confidence in love. That love overcomes everything. Absolutely everything. If you love someone and you give your love to them and it doesn't melt their heart, give more until the heart melts. And it will melt because no heart can withstand love. But we need to also understand what love means. Love doesn't mean being nice to somebody. Love doesn't mean serving their laziness or selfishness or any of these sort of things. Love means acting in their best welfare. So I'll tell a pretty dramatic story, which as far as I'm concerned was uh, an act of true love, albeit pretty dramatic. So a friend of mine who was in the School of Philosophy, a good man, married and two children, and the wife became a very serious alcoholic. So very, very serious alcoholic. And life was chaotic at home. So ranting and ravings and all sorts of things. 
in the eyes of the husband, who was a very disciplined man, while he could take it, she was destroying the two teenagers. So, one day, now he had no legal right to do what he did, he just did it. It was about 11 o'clock at night, she was drunk as a coot and causing chaos. He grabbed her by the arm and he threw her out of the house. One wet, wintry night. And he said, you may not come back until you are sober. You may not see the children. All right. And a year later she came back sober and she's been sober ever since and they're an outstanding couple and an inspiration and all of that. But what he knew that her love for the children was strong enough to make her give up the alcohol. Does that make sense? So he did the tough love bit. So don't be a nice lover. Be a true lover. Once my son behaved very badly, very badly in relation to his upbringing. So I think he had a particularly good upbringing, so high standards were demanded of him. He behaved badly, right? And I discovered this. So I went home that night. I said to my wife and the the rest of the children, will you please leave the room? I want to talk to Robert. So a dark gloom came over the house right, as the master of the household was about to speak so I said to him I have been informed of the following X, Y, Z I said you better make up your mind now that you will tell me the truth or not so is it true so he said yes I said okay you have 15 minutes to pack your bags and get out of this house and never come back again. And then I waited. Robert De Niro style. Perfect timing. <laughs> right? Perfect timing. So about 10 minutes of agonizing silence and then, oh, right? You will promise me on your mother's life, i.e. you wish her dead, that you will never, ever, ever do this again. And he said, can I answer now? I said, no. Fifteen minutes time. Okay? Sit in the room. I'll be back in fifteen minutes time. So I had a perfect stern face. (laughs) So I went out to the kitchen to my wife and I said, did Manchester United win tonight or not? Did you see the result? And we had a chat about something. I don't know. The fridge was gone or whatever it was. So we chatted about absolutely nothing. And then... (laughs) <laughs> back in and I said have you made your decision <laughs> he said I promise on my mother's life that I will never ever ever do that again I said excellent he said would you like a cup of tea and then we chatted about whatever it was then he went to bed about 30 minutes later anyway he was about 17 at the time now 34 when he was about 22 he wrote me a letter he said I want to thank you that night they were the worst 15 minutes of my life and he said I am so grateful that you did it in that way because I cannot forget that moment and I cannot break the promise you don't pander to people's weaknesses so let's say you have some challenging situation at home and you're trying to make it good by being nice stroke soft that may be the very worst thing So often to bring a child, let's say it's a child, to bring their behaviour around, you cut off the mothering supply. 
So you say there'll be no food. Right? You'll find that hunger makes them quite good. Right? <laughs> you say there'll be no clothes cleaned for you. There'll be no ironing. They say, how do you work a, a washing machine? Find out, kid. <laughs> right? Find out how to use an iron. And you'll find very quickly. So you do what is necessary to bring about true behaviour, not because it makes your life more easy, but for their sake. For example, we have a parenting course. And one of the lines in the parenting course is, do you ask a child to be quiet for your sake or for the child's sake? If you ask a child to be quiet for your sake, that's just selfishness. And you have no right to. But if you ask the child to be quiet for its sake, so that it can learn quietude and enjoy it, that's an act of love. So whatever it is, whatever the form of the action is, let it be motivated by love. If it is, it will work. It will work. And I'll just give you an example of love. But if you take that Jesus Christ was the embodiment of love, when he came to Peter and Andrew on the road, and albeit that they must have been men of a very high order, he came up to them and said, follow me. Now, he was a swarthy Middle Easterner right, with brown eyes and very plain clothes. There was no Ralph Lauren clothes in those days. So, And he said, follow me. And they dropped their lives and followed him. So you can try that in Derry now tomorrow. You can stand on one of the streets, you can go up to anybody and say, follow me. See how many people follow you. And you know the reasons they won't follow you? Because you're not the embodiment of absolute love. Leon McLaren, without any insult to my father, I have never loved anybody as I love and loved Leon McLaren, the man who founded the School of Philosophy. He was just the most amazing human being that I ever met. And he was quite an elderly man and not steady on his feet. And in Townley Hall there's this fantastic stairwell, but it's stone, limestone, or one of these stones. And he was walking up the steps ahead of me. All right? And somebody was holding one hand and he was also, his hand might have been on the railing. But he was unsteady. And I found myself positioning myself. Now, he's quite a heavy man as well. I found myself positioning myself so that if he fell, he would fall on me and wouldn't hurt himself. Now, he'd probably squash the living daylights out of me, but he wouldn't hurt myself. And I was virtually reduced to tears that this man could melt my heart to make me do that. I can assure you I don't stand behind I don't go up the stairs behind very many people saying if they fall at least they can fall on me so love is all powerful but it needs to be true love and it will work now even if you've doubts and it'd be very uh, understandable if you did have doubts understand this that if you learn to love truly then the loving will satisfy you and there will be no need to be loved in return. Because we don't love ourselves, first of all, and we're not truly loving, we crave love from others. But real humanity, real manhood or womanhood, means that you just love yourself so much that you have no need for the love of another. 
You say a seriously autistic child. It demonstrates no love for anybody. But that doesn't mean that a mother cannot have full satisfaction in that relationship. And the full satisfaction for her is determined by her love of the child, not by the child's love of her. So that's what we need to do. Again, I say this, it's a personal comment. I actually love Shane Mulhall. I really like him. You know? I, I thought, you know, I enjoy being with him. I, I, I like to think, you know, he, he's, he's a nice guy. I don't need other people to tell me you're a nice guy. I think I am. Am I? <laughs> See, this is why children are so confident. Because they have self-love. They don't need it from others. So, never do a loving deed in order to be loved by another. Do the loving deed because you wish to express your love for another. It's again, it's, no, it's a horrible question. One of these horrible philosophical questions. When you marry, are you looking for somebody to love you? Well then, your marriage is based on selfishness. And is doomed for to be anything from appalling to all right what you do is go looking for somebody to love if you're looking for a partner in life go look for somebody to love who would you most like to love and ideally you find somebody who has exactly the same belief and if you find somebody who sought out you to love and you sought out her to love well then it's going to be fantastic and in this way, you make no demands on the other person. None at all. If you take with a child, you make no demands on a child. I think it's very interesting, you know, that when our first child was born, I wasn't at the uh, first. I think there was a rugby match on or something. And I, mean, I wasn't... I wasn't hey, it was an important rugby match. I think it was the All... I'm sure it was the All Blacks or something like that. Anyway, I wasn't at the first birth. And... It's very interesting, because I'm driving along, and I think, yes, I must have got a phone call to be told that the child is born. That was always very short now. It might have been, it wouldn't have been a text in those days. Anyway, got a short message. And for a moment, your mind thinks, is it a boy or is it a girl? Is it all, has it got two arms and two legs? You know, is it mentally okay? And I just ruthlessly dismissed that from my mind, those considerations, as irrelevant because it is irrelevant. And what you do is you accept the child that comes into your life. You make no demands. You wouldn't say, oh God, I'm looking for a blonde. <laughs> right? And look, she's inherited her mother's nose. God, this is awful. There'll be, there'll be um, plastic surgery at some stage then on this face. <laughs> right? you, know, you don't do these things. You say, you just accept the person totally. Imagine if you could treat an adult like that. Just accept them completely as they are. Imagine how much love would flow. This is why love flows between a mother and a child. The mother has no standards for the type of child she wants. Does that make sense? She just absolutely accepts the one. And the child has no standards. Imagine if you're a little child, you're looking up there and saying, God... Looks like I could become overweight when I'm older, and uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. Don't think she's got a degree or anything. <laughs> you know? and, uh, I, I was hoping the car would be bigger. 
you know, the child, like, the, you could be, you could be Quasimodo, and the child would be just looking into your one eye and saying, I love you. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? That's fantastic. Nobody accepts you as much as a young child. And that's why the love is so beautiful. That's why we love them so easily. The idea is to love the person in front of you. Not the person they could be, but the one who's there in front of you. And you know that humorous sort of analogy, uh, marriage, and um, there's the dignified groom at the top of the altar. And this princess, dressed in white, comes walking down the aisle and is presented to the man at the top of the aisle. And he looks down at his glorious bride and he says, I hope she never changes. And she looks up at him and she thinks, I hope he does change. (laughs) (laughs) And they are both bitterly disappointed. She changes on the instant and he never, ever, ever changes. (laughs) So, that's the way it is. So, love the one in front of you. The one in front of you. The one who's there now. Right now. Even if they're spitting anger, love them now. Meet their anger in love. I'm not sure whether this is very relevant to to what you talk, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But there you quoted Jesus as saying that the dead bury their dead. Now, I'm talking about the, the dead that were buried. Where do they stand? Do they not exist anymore? Death if they're dead, they won't be standing anyway. (laughs) (laughs) No. Not having proof, it is better to put forward a number of possibilities. The only thing that we can be certain of on death is that the body dies. Whether mind and heart dies, we don't know. So, one possibility is that mind and heart cannot exist without a body. The other possibility is that mind and heart cannot express itself outwardly without a body. So that it would be possible to have a mind but not be able to express it if you didn't have a brain. Just as somebody who has a stroke can be said to have a mind but the brain is seriously affected so that the contents of the mind cannot be expressed through a damaged brain. So one possibility is the complete non-existence after death. The next possibility is that there is continuing existence. And if you're a Christian, or some of the religions will say, well, there'll be continuing existence, but it won't be bodily. It'll be spiritual. And depending on your how well you lived, you go to either heaven or hell. And that's another possibility. The third possibility, which involves the theory of reincarnation, is that on your death, so-called, the body dies, but your mind and heart continues. And it effectively takes on another body in order to fulfill its journey. This would be the equivalent of purgatory within the Christian teaching. It's not so popular anymore, but in days of old, the idea was that if you led a reasonably good life, but not good enough to be in the presence of God, you have to be purged, you have to go to purgatory, where you are purified until you are worthy to be in the presence of God. Reincarnation basically says, yes, you do have to be purged, but that purging takes place here on earth. So you come back again. Until you attain that purity and perfection, 
which is worthy of being in, if you're religious, in the presence of God, if you're philosophical, to be in the presence of your own true self. So there are the three possibilities. Well, of the three possibilities, would you care to say which would be your favourite? My favourite. <laughs> <laughs> the one that I accept as true is reincarnation. And the reason that I accept that is because it explains so much to me. So it explains why a talent can be there from the very beginning. It explains why injustice can befall a person who apparently is innocent. If you believe in reincarnation, that is the end of all concept of good luck, bad luck, injustice. Because reincarnation allows for the possibility of events in a previous life being paid for or enjoyed in a current life. And so, if you take very simply, if a man or woman drinks excessively on a Tuesday night, and they have a hangover on a Wednesday morning, you can say, you can look at them and say, you were drinking last night. The hangover on the Wednesday morning is proof positive of the excessive drinking on Tuesday night. If you see somebody, maybe they have cirrhosis of the liver or something like that at at age 40, you can say, well, you have been drinking in your teenage years in in your 20s. So sometimes there can be a long gap between the cause and the effect. So, like some trees grow to maturity in 10 years or 20 years. Some take 200 years. Some acts, like drinking excessively, produce hangovers the next day. They might produce illnesses 30 or 40 years later. But other acts, the fruit of the act may not be revealed for a long, long time hundred years, a thousand years, whatever. So, if you say, what have I found to be the advantage of reincarnation for me? First of all, there's no fear of death. Because I know I'm not going to die. I may change a body, which is exciting, as exciting as changing a car. When your body gets to be in my shape, the, sort of an, the thought of a new car gets more and more attractive. Right? A little pink one that everybody adores and holds and says is gorgeous. It's at least 60 years since anybody ever said to me, my God, you have magnificent eyes. I'm looking forward to that again. (laughs) When they say, oh, what beautiful eyes you have. So that is one thing. The fear of if you truly believe or know to be true, reincarnation, then you cannot fear that. Death is the equivalent of going to sleep at night. And I'm not afraid to go to sleep at night. In fact, I'm so unafraid of going to sleep, sometimes I do during the day as well. (laughs) I kind of like it. Going to sleep at night, in the ordinary sense, is simply going to sleep with this body, mind and heart, and waking up with this body, mind and heart. Dying is going, is dying with this body, mind and heart, and waking up with a new body, and the same mind and heart. Not much significance in that. It's like getting undressed. That's all you do. You undress the body and move on. The fear of death is a dreadful fear, you know, and particularly as you get older, it's worse and worse fear. So to be free of that is outstanding. And then the, the second great freedom that comes with the knowledge or acceptance of reincarnation is that you never reject anything that happens to you as unjust or unfair or undeserved. 
you realize that the great Christian law, as you sow, so shall you reap, is true. And, first of all, as I said, you don't reject anything that happens to you. You don't resist anything. But you realize that it is there to teach you something. It is a purging. And the benefit of purging is that you are purified. You become a greater man or woman. So that's excellent. And the second thing is it really does help you not to commit selfish or nasty deeds. Because you know you're going to pay. Nobody tries to rob a bank if they know they're going to be caught. You only rob a bank if you think you're going to get away with it. And every bad deed that you and I do, we can only do it if we believe we're going to get away with it. If you know there is a law that as you sow, so shall you reap, it becomes very difficult to do harm to others, etc., etc. And we accept this law, as you sow, so shall you reap. So, if you're a city fellow and you're on a farm and there's a farmer planting corn, you don't say to him, what crop do you expect to get? Will it be a banana crop? You know that if a man plants corn, the crop will be corn. Because everything only produces of its own nature. And so, for example, imagine if things didn't produce their own nature. So imagine if you became pregnant and you didn't know whether you were going to have a pussycat, a butchery guard, <laughs> or a human baby. Imagine that, nine months carrying a bloody budgery guard. That's all you got was this damn thing that couldn't even sing. <laughs> you know, all that trouble. I can assure you that every woman is absolutely confident that what is going to emerge is a human being. So everything produces only of its own kind. So a good act can never produce a bad outcome. Because badness is not of the kind of goodness. And a, a bad deed can never produce a good outcome. What confuses us is that we see bad people apparently getting good outcomes. And we see people who live good lives and apparently have bad outcomes. But we're not seeing the full picture. Because the badness that has befallen now is not being produced by that good deed, but a bad deed prior to it. If I give an analogy, did you see Godfather 3? Oh, pretty good film. But let's say you, you hadn't seen Godfather 1 and you hadn't seen Godfather 2 and you only came in at the very end of Godfather 3. And there what you see is Al Pacino, now an elderly man, walking out with a daughter that he absolutely loves from the opera. And as he walks down the steps, a person attempts to shoot him, as far as I remember, but shoots her instead. So she collapses dead in his arms. And I don't know if you remember that scene, he screams. He screams as only a father or mother can scream at the loss of a child. So it's outstanding acting and a horrendous scene. Now let's say that's the only part of The Godfather you've seen. And you say, God, that was a tragedy, wasn't it? He was such a nice man. He was so, you know, loved his daughter. And there she was shot in an accident. But if you saw The Godfather part one, two, and three, you'd say to yourself, I think he got what he deserved. Because you now know the complete story. The bigger picture. So, once you accept reincarnation, you accept the fact that you don't know the bigger picture, and you stop judging. This is fantastic to be free of all that judgment. Otherwise, if you accept, let's say, the Christian, or the current Christian viewpoint, that it's all God's will, I would not wish to love or know such a God, who, with no discrimination at all, 
imposes spina bifida on that being and incredible wealth on a being at random. You know, there's no logic to that. How could that which is the source of all love and all wisdom inflict without any cause misery on one and grant happiness to another? No parent, no true parent could act in such a way. So a God that just dispenses benign things and malign things or malignant things as randomly, I'm not interested in such a God. But the theory of reincarnation eliminates that whole thing. And what it also does, maybe this is the last thing, invokes a sense of responsibility. I don't blame anybody else. Whatever befalls my life, it is my responsibility. Sometimes I feel there's a contradiction between being true to yourself and then, like, there's responsibilities of life. There's, you know, maybe you get to a certain age and you realise that you're not being true to yourself, but you're in this situation. So, I mean, what do you do then? I mean, sometimes it's not always easy to be true to yourself because it might mean, you know, causing a lot of upset for a lot of other people. That's the dreaded hatchet, you know. I started this, so now I have to finish it, type of thing. Well, if you live wisely, first of all, you won't end up in that situation. That's the first thing. But if you do, then you serve, let's call it the higher truth. Let's say it's natural for man to be joyous, right? And he should always be as joyous as much as he can be. Well, what fills my heart with joy is rugby. So I am a joyous man on a Heineken Cup weekend, right? However, I have also undertaken the responsibility of husband, and there's not much fathering left now, but anyway, when they were younger, there was a father. So which is the higher truth? To play football with the child while the Heineken Cup match is on, or to watch the Heineken Cup match and have a miserable child? So just serve the higher truth. That's all. Then you are being true to yourself. Because man always goes for the best. If you go into a supermarket, and there's fresh fruit, unpacked fruit. What do you do? You always pick the best. That's natural. The human being is always seeking perfection or the best. So do that. Could person be true to himself and commit suicide? It would depend how you define suicide. So, if a person laid down their life or took a cyanide tablet in order to save the lives of others, you couldn't really call that suicide. That would be a sacrifice. Like Socrates being the classic example. And, if I may say, and Jesus, and, you know, as he said, look, I can bring down a host of angels and wipe you out if I want to. So you can't say that Jesus committed suicide or that Socrates committed suicide. But suicide is where you effectively deny all that is good. The mind and heart can only perceive the darkness or the the misery. So that is a terrible deed. It's a terrible state and it's a terrible deed. Because it is a complete denial of all that is good and true. In that sense, then, it would not be possible to be true to yourself and commit suicide. Because you have denied so much that is true to yourself. Like, for example, sometimes people, I, I, I don't know these things intimately, but sometimes a person might commit suicide because they say, nobody loves me. But what's left behind is all people who did love them. It was just a denial of their love. It was an ignorance. You brought up the topic of suicide. Can I just give you a very practical, because suicide is a dreadful phenomenon. Dreadful, dreadful. 
phenomenon and hurt so many people. Anyway, many years ago, I decided I would take a look at this. And I read a number of books on suicidology, which is the knowledge of suicide. I can't remember by who, but there was one, one truly brilliant point in the books I read. And it is this, that the, a person can only commit suicide if they think they have no option. The human being cannot get itself to kill itself if it thinks there's an alternative. So the mind has to reduce to only one option only. And if a person has suicidal thoughts, and you know that, what you do is you give them options. And this book, it's a simple enough example, but a daughter read, uh, reared by a very good but puritanical father whom she adored. Anyway, she finds herself pregnant, cannot bear the thought of disclosing this to her father and tries to commit suicide. And now the father's not aware of this and then she attempts it. Anyway, she's now meeting this suicidologist and he said, well, what are the options? And the options are she could abort. And he wasn't recommending anything. She could abort. She could carry the baby, put it up for adoption. She could close it to her father. She could commit suicide. And all these things. And then he asked her to rank them. There was about ten different options and she ranked suicide fourth. He said, why not do the first one? She's alive. We don't often fancy doubt. We don't like the idea of doubt, but doubt is excellent if you want to stop somebody committing suicide. You put a doubt in their mind. And I don't know if you've ever heard Dr. Camillus Power give a talk, a man in the school of philosophy. But he tells the story of when he was a young doctor and a young man was brought into the hospital having attempted suicide but survived the attempt. And Dr. Power treated the man and was trying to restore him to good health and like that. And the young man, after about four or five days, would have said with a certain venom, I am going to be successful the next time I do it. So Dr. Power engaged in conversation with him and said, why do you want to commit suicide? And the young man said, because I want to bring an end to all this misery. And Camilla's Power just said to him, how do you know it brings it to an end? And that man, as far as I know, years later was still alive. Because the doubt had been planted in his mind. Maybe death does not bring an end to the misery. So, if you want to stop somebody committing suicide, plant a doubt. Either give them an alternative, which would be the positive, or the negative side, plant a doubt. That's fine if you have that opportunity. But suicides happen to people that are not getting that opportunity. Yeah. And it's usually depression. Absolutely. Yes. That they can't see anything other than this way out. Absolutely. But yeah. you, have, you have to present an alternative. Yes, but that's what I'm saying. Society needs to present the alternative, which it's not doing. Absolutely. We could do an awful lot more. We don't have to confine ourselves to the suicide. We do an awful lot more for every human being. Yes, but suicide is very prevalent in today's society. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Mm. I just wonder where the school is on this subject. Well, I was asked to give a talk to the Irish Suicide Society once at our annual conference. And it's my belief that the method of dialectic, which Socrates is famous for, would be a great help 
to stop people committing suicide. And I put this forward in the talk, that what you have to do is to question, you have to get the person to question their desire. Now, just leaving aside suicide, I'm going to talk about something very mundane now, but the principle is true. Between the age of 10 and 16, children become quite difficult. If you if you don't rear them properly, they continue to be difficult after 16. But anyway, between the ages of 10 and 16, they can be very difficult. Because they have tremendous desires, but not full capacity of reason. And as a parent, you can try and parent them as you did when they were younger, with direction and order and just do this and shut up and all that sort of stuff. And it doesn't work after 10. Because what needs to be happening is that the child needs to develop reason so that it can look at its desires and see them to be unreasonable and drop them rather than suppress them. So, I have a, a son, or we have a son, and he's now aged 13 when this happens. Now, there's a weakness in this story, by the way, but he was only 13, so he didn't see the weakness, and I was certainly not going to point it out to him. So he comes to me, we have one television in our house, therefore we have one remote control. And that remote control is never more than an arm's length away from me. (laughs) So wherever I sit, the remote control follows so that it's within arm's length. And I get nervous when other people are holding it. I feel I'm not fully in control. Anyway, one day I'm sitting in the sitting room uh, on my own. He comes in and he says, why can't I have a remote control as well, right? Which is a good question, you know. If, if there's one, uh, and that, why can't everybody have it? So I said to him, I said, I said, look, that's an excellent question. So let's look at that. So I said, if you have one, do you think it would be reasonable that your elder sister would have one? He said, yes. Okay, so now we have three. I said, what about your mother? Does she deserve to have one? Yes, he said. Right, so we'll perform. What about your younger sister, who was about a year younger than him, or two years younger? He said, yes. And then I said, what about Jessica, who was aged about four? Should she have one, or would age debar? He said, no, she'd have to have one. Okay, so now we're going to have six remote controls and one telly. Okay, what would be the outcome? He said, well, we'll have to watch Emmerdale and Coronation Street. (laughs) And uh, we'll have to watch an awful lot of cartoons. Because if Jessica has the remote control, she will want cartoons, and the channels will be changed after five seconds. I said, so how would you, you know, I might use different language, I said, how would you summarize that? He said, chaos. I said, so would you like chaos? He said, no. I said, that's why you're not getting a remote control. <laughs> now, he didn't ask the fundamental question, that's why. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, we dealt with that many years later. But it wasn't suppressed. In the end, he realized that if he got one, everybody had to get one, and if everybody got got one, there would be chaos, and he didn't want chaos. So he let go of his desire. That's real education, when they say so. That's real parenting. That's what I think can be done with the suicide, because man is reasonable, wishes to be reasonable, and the one who isn't ill, you know, the psychiatrist or the parent or the counselor or whatever, their responsibility, in my eyes, are to awaken reason in the one who is devoid of reason at that point in time. If you've ever known anybody who is, who was suicidal, at the time when they are seriously suicidal, they are devoid of all reason, and love has left their hearts, because they're willing to do the most selfish act of all. 
So the idea, the philosophical idea, was that suicidologists should work to restore love and reason to the being. Because a being with any element of love in their being, and any element of reason, would not be able to commit suicide. Either of those would stop them. I'm a little bit concerned about society. The society seems to be somebody else. I think what we need are strong families, not strong government or strong society. If the bricks are weak, the wall is going to be weak. If you can get strong bricks, you can get a strong wall. If you get strong families, you will have a strong society. And what we have to do, I believe, is to educate and parent and all these things so that families are strong and that they're self-reliant and they can cure most of their problems. They need the minimum of outside help because they are self-reliant, strong people. But of course, then, when something is too much, then help is available. My sister rang me once, um, many years ago, and she said that her son, who's aged about 17, the girlfriend had broken it off with him, and he was crying in the bedroom. He was distraught, weeping his little eyes out. And she said, I think I'll bring him to counselling. And I said, listen... Her name is Donna. Donna, you're his mother. You're his mother. You treat him. You learn to how to help a, a young man whose heart is so-called broken. Restore his heart. Don't be subcontracting it to somebody else. It's very important that we we should be able to, to do so many things ourselves. We need all the mundane things like do electrical work and a bit of carpentry and grow your own food and all of that and make some of your, make at least some of your own clothes. But also deal with our problems, our emotional problems and mental problems. And to help fulfill that, we need to have a much larger sense of family. If you ask a wife, let's say, ordinarily, who do you think as members of your family? She would say, my husband, the children, and my mother and father. And brothers. And if you ask him, he says, but you know what the full concept of a family is, philosophically speaking? It's seven generations. Seven generations. The three previous generations, the current one, and the next year. And whenever you're going to make a decision for your family of importance, you should consider the seven generations. Then all that is best of the past will come forward to help the future. So it is possible, you know, with true principles and and this is all outlined in many, many books, but we just ignore them. But that's what we need. We need people who are self-reliant, except for major adversity. Leon McLaren said that, that insurance, let's just take general insurance. General insurance came into existence when human beings were unwilling to help their neighbours. Remember the film Witness? Maybe way back in the Amish community. And I don't know whether the barn had burned down or they needed a barn. And all the people in the locality stopped work and built the barn for the new couple. That's the way it's meant to be. If tragedy befalls a member of the community, the community should restore that person to natural state. The community won't have exception clauses, but an insurance policy will. He also said, just by the way, Pensions came into existence when the young refused to care for the elderly. I told my children they were my pension scheme. I'm relying on you. But it's the most natural thing in the world that those who are adults will care for the young. And then the young adults will care for the elderly adults. 
the most natural the subcontracted O2 you know there are times when it's absolutely necessary but leaving aside those times to subcontract it out is to break the concept of family and what it stands for and then all that happens is that we ask the government for more and more and more with less and less and less tax for me it's all crazy governments do not come into existence to provide housing they don't come into existence for schooling they don't come into existence to provide hospitals that's not their job Governments have very little to do. They've managed that with all the responsibility, but they're not meant to do very much. They're meant to administer the law, and they're meant to ensure peace as opposed to war. Other than that, it should all be handled much more, you know, not centrally, much more locally, and ideally community-based. But you can't look to society, you have to look at yourself. First of all, if I need to say, if you're a married man, well, whether you're married or not, you're a member of a family. So let each one of us tidy up our own family first. Thank you, Shane. Did you say that the purpose of life is to discover the truth about yourself? Yes. Could you not discover that in a lecture or in a book? Does it take the whole life to discover the truth about yourself? What does that sentence really mean? Well, first of all, you won't discover it in a book. Because there's no truth in a book. There's never been a book written that there's any truth in it at all. And one great sage demonstrates, this doesn't mean the scriptures are invalid, but don't expect to find the truth in scriptures. One great sage demonstrates this, because he told this to his disciples. They were very upset by this, having dedicated a lot of time to study the, the, the great scriptures. And he said, well, he said, I want you to go down to the library, in the ashram and bring me up a book on the water tables in the local area. So the guy came back with the uh, the book on the water tables in the local area, handed it to the sage, who squeezed it and said, "Look, no water. There's no water in a book about water. There's no truth in a book about truth. There are pointers towards the truth, but no truth itself. It's a bit like a signpost to cork has none of cork in it." You know, you can't stand under the signpost and say, it looks like I'm here. <laughs> right? I've arrived. It says cork. It's not cork, but it's pointing towards cork. And then there's a fantastic thing that happens with signposts. When you arrive in cork, what happens to the signposts? There, there's, well, there's, you know, but there's none for, for cork in cork. So, this is why words are outstanding for helping you to discover the truth. But you can only discover truth in silence. All the signposts have to go. And when they all do go, when your mind falls still and silent and has no more words, then you know. So books are good because they point you in the right direction. But never think that that's it. If you read a book about how to swim, it won't stop you drowning. So what you have to do is you have to take the pointers in the book and discover swimming within yourself. It's the same about the truth. Then you say, well, does it have to take all your life? Not at all. It can take that, or it can take, if you accept the theory of reincarnation, many lifetimes. It just depends how much you want it. So would you like to discover the truth? Yeah, I'd like to know the definition of it first. All right, well... I'll come back to that. Let's say, if we just accept that, I will come up with a definition. If I ask you, would you like to? Well, Jesus has said it. 
in many different ways, but we'll just take two ways. He says you cannot serve God and mammon. That's very simple. You can only serve God in everything you do. So you eat for God. You dress for God. You talk for God. And if you do, you'll find God. If you dress for yourself and eat for yourself and work for yourself or yourself and your family, well, that's what you'll find. Yourself and your family. You won't find God. So do we really want to find God? Say I said to you now, I can strike you down now and you'll find God. Anybody volunteer? Nobody wants to go now. Even the great Christian believers don't want to die. You can't really say we want to know the truth. We want to play a game. We want to serve mammon and God. Mainly mammon. Again, you know, people think that the, the Christian teaching is a lovely, lovely teaching of God. You know, is Jesus fully loved. But what did he say to us? He said, you must hate your mother and father. I know some of you have managed that now, but you've managed it in the wrong way. Right? <laughs> Anybody here willing to hate their mother and father in order to be an outstanding Christian? No, you don't want to. The first commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. There'll be no love for anybody or anything except God. We want that. So you see, we don't really want it. We're entranced by mammon. And to be on the safe side, we'll throw in a bit of God. Sunday mornings. Every three months. <laughs> if it's a short sermon. <laughs> So what is truth, right? This is not an answer that would probably satisfy you, but it's an answer that you might ponder on. Is that okay? If I said, I love my wife, I say it to her on a Monday, and then on a Tuesday I say, actually, I don't think I love her. And then on a Wednesday I say, actually, now, on mature reflection, I think I do. And then on Thursday, look, I'm not so sure anymore. And then Friday, I do. And this goes on for a while. Would you think that was true love? No. So what makes true love, true love, is constancy. Is that okay? So irrespective of whether she's got the flu or a headache, or is a nasty witch that day, you love her. That is true love. Is that okay? Because it has constancy. So the truth is that which does not change. So whatever does not change is true. Now, does this body change? Absolutely. Therefore, it is on that definition, it is not the truth about myself. Does this mind change? Absolutely. Therefore, it is not the truth about myself. Does this heart change? Yes. And according to that definition, it is not the truth about myself. So what is it? Is there a truth to me? And if it is, it is that which does not change. And maybe I'll finish with this. Again, it's not a proof, but it's worth reflecting on if you'd like to reflect on this. If we accept that truth is that which does not change, and my body does change, and my mind does change, and my heart also changes, then how am I to discover the truth? I told this story before. Say a young boy, you make a young boy, and he's aged four, and he comes up to you and says, Daddy, 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 I don't think I'm growing. I'm terrified of being small. I don't think I'm growing. And the father, and the, and the, and the boy's body is growing. So the father says, no, don't be ridiculous. I'm watching the Heineken Cup, and you are growing, okay? And the boy says, how do you know I'm growing? And the father might say, well, I, I remember when you were smaller. 
And, then, and the little boy, who's done a bit of philosophy, says, but your mum says your memory's appalling. You're almost forgetting anniversaries and birthdays and things like that. So how can we rely on something which is defective like your memory? So the father, in exasperation, will now grab the child, ram him up against the kitchen door, and insert a knife reluctantly slightly above his head and into to make a mark on the door. Okay? And he'd mark it, and then six months later, he'd tell the little boy, come back and we mark it again. And because of the gap, he would then say, now we can say you're growing. Is that okay? What happens if the little boy says, but why didn't we use a tree? What would you say to him? The tree is growing too. So, in order to tell change, we have to use something which is unchanging. Is that reasonable? So, we, we use a door as opposed to a tree. Can you tell change? Can you tell change? Yes, absolutely. And you know that with absolute confidence. But how can you tell change unless there's something unchanging in you? Now, if there's something unchanging in you, it's not your body or your mind or your heart, so there's a fourth factor. That's what the philosophical life is all about, to find that which is unchanging and undeniable in you, which is not body, not mind, not heart. And here's another sense of it. Now, these are not proofs, because if there were proofs, that would be the end. Might be a multimillionaire. But the other thing is, have you ever known you were confused? Right? And have you ever said, I am totally confused? Well, if you were totally confused, you wouldn't know whether you were confused or not. If you're totally confused, you're absolutely certain about being totally confused. So something in you enjoys certainty while the rest of you is in confusion. So what is it that can never get confused but recognizes confusion? And it's the same thing that recognizes clarity. Because a minute later, says, I'm absolutely clear now. It's there when there's clarity, and it's there when there's confusion. And it recognizes both equally. Discover that, and you'll discover the truth about yourself. So, thank you very much indeed.